I think it was about nine weeks ago, roughly, that uh, Seth began a sermon series. And in that sermon series, it was regarding um, biblical justice, a, a t- looking to identify what true justice is. Because of the events of the last oh, couple of years, um, we, we found ourselves in really a culture, and, and even within the church at large, um, there's been more and more polarization that's gone on. Um, even within the church, we have different camps and that have been created. Lines have been drawn. And in essence, it almost seems as though uh, there's even a, a new eschatology that was that has attempted to be created within church. But what has changed really is just the opinions of men. Not God. The word of God is still the hope that he has given us. Nothing has changed in that regard. Um, in the beginning of this series, uh, looked at Micah, and in Micah 6, 8, it says, Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So now as we look forward in the Advent series, um, coming up to Christmas, the Advent, or the coming of Jesus Christ, um, we're going to now look at what God has given us. God has said that, that to do good, we do these things, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So no matter your circumstances, uh, we have hope in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is a hope in which all people can trust and believe in. So in the scripture today that we'll be looking at, Paul writes his second letter to the Corinthians um, because, or primarily because his opponents there in that church, as Paul is not there, um, are, are making claims against him that he's unfit to actually be pastor of this church, or to be the leader of this church. See, in his first letter, he had written to the church to unify the people of the church to one another. And in the second letter, we find that Paul is writing to, to the church that they unify with him in the ministry of the gospel. So Paul writes this letter as only Paul writes letters, uh, and, and in it, it he's put rich and stirring perspectives on gospel ministry. Um, So if you would, you could open your Bibles or your app or what have you. We're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. We're basically reading the entire chapter. God's word says this. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasted away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are, un- that the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is the truth. Your word is what has uh, been given to us from the beginning of time. Men will make their attempts to rearrange, soften, or change completely the word that you have given. But Father, your word is never-ending. It is a gift that you have given each and every one of us that we may know the truth of who you are, what you've done, and that through it we can know you. So, Father, through that, through the knowing you, knowing who your Son is, knowing what your Son has done in his coming to this earth, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, raising again to come and return again one day to us, for us, for your people. God, that precious gift is beyond imagination and beyond comprehension. So, Father, we thank you. ask that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear from you in your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, boy, this is short. I don't know that it comes up or not. Was that you? That was you, wasn't it? No. So I'll stay back here. It's a little better. So in verse 1, it begins with a therefore having this ministry. So obviously a pretty simple thing to notice is that therefore would mean that for this reason or because of this, then we do the next thing. Well, so the therefore 
tells us that we really should look back a little bit and see what, for what reason, what is that reason. So going back to uh, chapter 3, and I, we're not going to read that, but I'll kind of hot give you the highlights, I guess. Paul contrasts his ministry to that of the Old Testament, his ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ to that of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses. So the Old Covenant glory has faded away to make room for the New Covenant found in Jesus Christ. Describing the veil in chapter 3 put over Moses' face to cover the glory that shone on his face after coming down from Mount Sinai. Paul says, how much more is the glory that we find in the gospel of the ministry of the Spirit given by the mercy of God through Jesus Christ? So having this ministry, the one just described, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So I guess the big idea that I'm looking for here in this section of scripture is ripe with multiple sermons, if you will. But my, my point here is that what you believe about life, about, about the finality of death, and the purpose of suffering, it determines your hope. But let's look a little closer to this ministry that Paul is talking about. And in doing so, we need to kind of go back again into another book and, and briefly read about the story of Saul and the Damascus Road. So in Acts 22... Saul is uh, on his way to go persecute some Christians. That's what his zeal was about. He was a devout follower of the Old Covenant. And uh, so this is just immediately after a bright light, brighter than the sun, appears, blinding everyone. And it says in verses 14 through 18 of Acts 26, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul has this come-to-Jesus moment, I think, like probably none other, right? Um, I've never had that kind of a moment with Jesus. Um, I've had a few moments, but not like that. But at that point forward, Paul has a new zeal. He has a new desire, a new a new way in which he's going to walk in his life. And so he believes in the risen Jesus Christ at that moment. See, everything hinges on what it is that you believe. And so we can look back over the course of the last couple of years as, a, as an example. So what you believe about racism, COVID, masks, vaccines, personal loss, 
and most recently broken relationships even among us can determine your view of the world around you. Belief is everything. It determines your speech, your attitude. It determines your willingness to strive to live justly or possibly even unjustly. So how do we in this in this place in which we live, in this world today, in the midst of controversy, in the middle of all the turmoil, navigate this life that we've been given. Paul bookends this section of scripture with the phrase, we do not lose heart. So in other words, we have hope. Hope in the sacrifice and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this section of scripture, There is enough, like I said, for many sermons. But I I would like to outline five reasons why Paul does not and we must not lose hope. The first one being, we do not lose heart because God has given us this ministry. So the very ministry that I spoke of that Paul received is the very same ministry that we received. We can look Well, Paul, in verses 2 through 4, Paul demonstrates his great love for God's people. That's one of the first things that this belief that we have should be changing in your heart. It should be taking us from me to you. That should be our goal, is that we should suddenly love others as ourselves, right? Right? So Paul, he says that he refuses to lose heart due to the fact of this ministry he will not sell out. He proclaims the gospel and the gospel alone. We have, he says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. So he's not seeking to water it down. Unlike his opponents in Corinth, who have called into question his character, and they are seeking a congregation of their own. They're seeking it for their own glory and for financial gain. Paul knows for whom this ministry has been given, and he also knows from whom this ministry must be proclaimed. Paul then uses the phrase, the God of this world, or, or as we would know that to be Satan, But if we really look around the world in which we live today, what veils or blinds the eyes of unbelievers? Just think of some examples in your life. What is it that veils their eyes to believe? See, Satan can use many things to accomplish his goals, and he often does. He's crafty. And so as as easy as it is for him, it simply, it simply means, and this could be for the non-believer and even for us at times, all that needs to happen is just to switch priorities a little bit. So it could be anything from uh, money, uh, lifestyle, a particular lifestyle. Uh, it could be pride, a resentment unrepentant sin of any kind, anything but the truth. That's all it takes. 
in John 17, verses 14 through 17, this is uh, just prior to Jesus being betrayed. He's praying to the Father, a very heartfelt prayer. And he says in verse 14, speaking to his Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So Paul and we do not lose heart because we have hope in the ministry of this truth. Secondly, we do not lose heart because what we proclaim is not ourselves. So let's be honest, okay? Um, We have seen over and over recently how past events um, have shown us, or should, should, should have shown us, that self-proclamation is not very effective. <laughs> Changing people's hearts and minds about things is not an easy task. I mean, we can, we can look at the, the recent events and, and what I mentioned earlier you know, the vaxxers versus the non-vaxxers or the maskers versus the non-maskers. How many, how many people that promote vaccines have convinced those that don't want anything to do with vaccines to suddenly take a vaccine or vice versa, right? We can proclaim all kinds of things, often not extremely effective, I couldn't help but when, when doing this, uh, preparing for the sermon, I couldn't help but continually go back to uh, the book in our equip study, Suffering, Paul Tripp writes. And by the way, if you haven't read it, it is a must read. But one of the things he does is he highlights how little we actually control. That in fact, for the most part, what we think of as control is illusion. That's harsh talk. Right? I don't like to think of myself as being, you know, just mentally deluded to the idea that I have some kind of control. But I can give a few examples. Um, now, this, this dates me some because I'm old. But <clears throat> if you go just 13 years back, how's that? Is that too far? But most of you are young enough, young families... So it's getting to the place where you're starting to think about the future, maybe where is it I'm going to land financially. And, of course, I think we all would like to be able to see ourselves as comfortable. And so a lot of people, including myself, put money in 401Ks. And the older you get, the more you think about putting more money into 401Ks, right? Um, And so back 13 years ago, the individual that was concerned about their future lifelong and having a good retirement is pumping money into that 401k until overnight 50-60% of that 401k is now gone. Not exactly in control, right? Or let's do another example. I'm sure very familiar to all of you right now since we have a room full of kids, parents. 
You have children. You, you pour your life into these kids. And the idea is that the more I pour my life into these kids and teach them the, the way in which they should go, right? Teach them from God's word. That's not a bad thing. Not at all. But trying to see, uh, control the outcomes of another individual's life not always successful. And I don't mean to you know, say this is necessarily going to be you. It was an experience of mine growing up. Um, I wasn't the greatest of fathers. I know that. But I put into my two children's lives basically the same things, one of which is, uh, seemed to uh, kind of go along with, with what mom and dad said, more or less. The other one, not so much. And as a young man, uh, my son, I, I got to spend time speaking to him through plexiglass. Came out of the same home, put the same things into it, but the control was not mine. So we do the things we do because it's the right thing to do. It's what we should do. If invest in, in your future, sure. Have hope in the outcomes. That hope should be in Christ. We don't know. And there's purpose in everything. We all know that. But in, t- in verse 5, it says, For we proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Thank God we have something true and of lasting value and one who actually has the control in which to proclaim. As Paul writes, we are servants for Jesus' Jesus' sake. Or in another translation, it says we are slaves for Jesus' sake. So what is it that slaves do? Slaves do whatever their master tells them to. Pretty much. Be my guess. So what is it that, that our master, that Paul's master, has told him to do? We just read it in, in Acts. We can go to the Great Commission and look at that and see what it is that we are supposed to do. It's one of the reasons why Seth and I are on our way to Africa next week, right? Um, Paul uses this provision of light in verse 6 as a picture of conversion, as in the dawning of a new creation. So the only enlightenment worth having and embracing is that which belongs to and comes from God. There is no separation in, in what Paul's talking about here, though, between the various parts of our lives. We can't have rule over one part of our life and expect Christ to reign in the rest. You realize we're slaves for Christ's sake. That is the only path that can lead to true transformation. The only path that brings the wonderment of salvation to the here and to the now. So we do not lose heart because we have hope in the one in whom we proclaim. One of the biggest, one of my mantras over the last two or three years has been, get me out of it. Please. (laughs) It's never good when I get me too much in it. 
Third thing that uh, I wanted to discuss here is that we do not lose heart because we are clay pots full of treasure. This is especially good news because in our next verse, Paul points out that people, all people, and even those with huge YouTube followings, I don't care who you are, are ordinary and fragile and easily broken. In verse 7, there's three terms that stick out in my mind, and that is treasure, clay pots, and surpassing power. So let's talk about clay pots for just a moment. Um, This is a very common metaphor used in the ancient world for human weakness. Clay pots were very common. They were ordinary. Um, They're, of course, fragile, but they're used because they're cheap, and easily replaced. So you, you, you're like, well, well, well wait a minute. What, what's Paul saying here? Is Paul saying that, uh, and, and trying to compare it to me to something that's common, ordinary, and fragile? Absolutely. You see, the minute I think, or you think you're not, that's when problems happen. That's when, that's when churches fall apart. Uh, that's when Christians grow jaded. That's when we begin to separate ourselves from our communities of faith. It's the treasure that's in the pot. Not the pot, but it's the treasure in the pot that has any real value. So what is this treasure? Look again in verse 6. It says, Light in the darkness shone in the hearts the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of our clay pot is to show the surpassing power of God in the person of Jesus Christ in our ordinary, fragile, and common lives. You think about it. Paul's talking about adversity and all the troubles, but we're, we, we are crushed, but we're not broken. You know, we, it's like a clay pot, we're cracked, prone to leak. <laughs> and I hope that's the case in your life. I do. Because if we are in Christ, if we are really filled with that treasure, others can see the fact that we're just as broken as they are. And yet... We're being held together. How? How is that? That's in Christ. There's true hope in that for not just ourselves, but for anyone and everyone around us. In verses 8 through 12, they outline the effects of this treasure. We have been given the ability to suffer with an, with an effect on ourselves and all on those around us. So have you ever known someone, I'm sure any one of us could probably think of somebody, but known someone that's gone through some tragedy, something horrible, a trial that completely destroyed them? You seen this? It's, it's a tragic thing to see. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one or a relationship destroyed or a personal illness. Clay pots. The treasure that is available through the Spirit 
of the surpassing power of God is the only thing that mends the clay. In verses 7 through 10, we see the paradox of the life of the Christian, afflicted but not crushed. The depth of character in Paul is only possible precisely because of the affliction. Being crushed, persecuted, and driven to spare, these verses repeat the central theme of this entire letter. So I'd like to go back to the beginning of the letter and look at briefly um, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. I got it here somewhere. I actually marked it so I wouldn't uh, lose my place. And now I can't find it. So, verse 3 In, in his greeting to the church, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Would you experience, would you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer? Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we've experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will deliver us again and also help, help us in prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. <clears throat> we do not lose heart because there is hope in us, a vessel of service for the treasure and the surpassing power of Jesus Christ. The fourth thing I wanted to look at here was we do not lose heart because death has no power over us. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, a book shortly after his, uh, his wife of just three years passed away. Uh, he was broken. As a matter of fact, he wrote this book with, uh, with a pseudonym because he didn't want people to buy the book because it was written by him. But in it, there's a quote, and it says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. Powerful words. Is the gospel a matter of life and death to you? something to consider. 
on the other side of that, have you ever gotten so excited about something that you made a decision that, uh, not really considering all the possible outcomes? I mean, how about buying the car that's beyond your budget? Um, or uh, maybe a house, maybe maybe a timeshare, um, maybe leaving the good job because you're going to get a better one, or uh, taking that new good job and leaving the, the old job that you had that was just fine. Anyway, later realizing, oops, <laughs> um, Considering the cost is something that often gets overlooked in the excitement of the new thing or experience. And so sometimes we get lucky um, and everything just seems to work out just fine. And then other times we might pay a heavy price. But nothing has a greater and more permanent significance than choosing to be a disciple of Christ. Unlike the poor choice you have made in buying that high dollar car, The choice to follow Christ has eternal impact on you and those around you. See, I'm not sure I truly understood the expectation that Jesus Christ had for me at the time that I began to follow him. Well, originally, knowing how I think, I I probably thought that I just lucked out and scored uh, a ticket to the uh, non-smoking section of eternity. You know, all excited about that. And then, then after sticking around long enough, I realized by hearing some of these things that are being said, um, stuff like, uh, pick up your cross and follow me. And I thought, that, that doesn't sound real good. Um, over time, I began to really understand the truth. In verses 10 through 13, the gospel It requires your everything. If being a vessel, if being a slave for Christ is who we are, then like Paul, we must be willing to live with the death of Christ in us. Remember I mentioned Paul's great love for the church and how as a Christian, I need to get me out of the equation and start considering you or those around me. That's putting to death who I am and being more concerned about the life of another. Jesus even says this in in Luke 14, 27. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So, I mean, you get this picture of what that means, bearing this cross. We've seen movies about it and have these pictures of, of Jesus lumbering with this giant chunk of wood on his back, beaten, dragging it up the hill to be hung on it. That's the cross he's talking about, right? Those are challenging words. But Paul, like in his letter, like Jesus in the book of Luke, is not watering down this message, the cost of following Jesus, it's free, but it comes with a price. See, when we advocate on behalf of Christ's salvation, even at great cost to ourselves, we show others 
who Jesus truly is. And furthermore, God then has the opportunity to mold us into the people that we were meant to be since the beginning of time. The people who live to uh, act out the image that God intended for us. But we don't do this alone, and that's good news. We serve a resurrected Christ, the one who controls all things and who will also raise us up with him. So we do not lose heart because there is hope in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. Fifth, we do not lose heart because we know there is an eternal glory that awaits us. So when we suffer for others, when we get out of ourselves, suffer for others, it's gain for the gospel. Another one of the quotes from Tripp, and again, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself, out of suffering, it says, Our smallness and weakness aren't our greatest dangers. The greatest danger is the delusion that we are bigger and stronger than we are or ever will be. Here is suffering's paradox. The very things we would do anything to avoid, the very things that confront our understanding of who we are, and the very things that cause us the most pain become the very things that usher into our lives the blessings of the help, hope, peace, and rest that we all long to experience. That's extremely true. The problem is it's difficult to believe in the moment when we need to believe it. It's a sad thing that we often don't embrace the full story of the gospel. And that's me, that's everyone. At some points, we're not embracing the full story of the gospel, the one that requires everything of us. Because no great story has ever been written that did not contain conflict, trial, struggle. No great character has ever been made who did not face extreme trouble or trial. And the same is true for the Christian. We cannot be made into what we are meant to be without difficulty. In verse 16 and 17, it says, We do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Use of that word, all, should give you pause. All comparison. Whatever your wildest dreams are, it's bigger than that. It is... Through conflict that God builds his eternal strength and hope in us. It is through conflict that we find out who we are. And in verse 18, it says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. So when we strip away all the facades, and, and, and we strip away all that stuff through hardship. We see the person underneath. We see whether our lives are truly and fully 
devoted to Jesus. We see the temporary fall away as the eternal takes over through the power of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So I don't know about you, but the last couple of years, probably more particularly the last couple of years, have been had their moments of difficulty, let's put it that way. I mean, some of the things that stick out, I mean, you've got your list, I'm sure, but I've got the pulpit, so I'm going I'm to give you a little of my list. But as an example, um, end of April 2000, early May, I'm feeling really bad, not, not, not so good, having trouble breathing. Finally go to the doctor. Uh, I visit the pulmonologist, and, and they kept going and getting new pulse oximeters because the one they had apparently wasn't working. They kept putting it on and going, no, that can't be right. Put another one on. Nope, that can't be right. After the third one, they went, uh, you need to go to the ER right now because apparently 78 isn't a good number. They're saying, oh, uh, internal organs may be you know, failing around this area. You need to go. So I drive home, I, I get a bag, tell Pam, hey, you gotta, we got to go to the ER. Grab a bag, she, she's driving, pulls up in front of the ER, and it looks like it's uh, at Cox. It looks like a scene out of the movie Outbreak. You know, this is the whole COVID thing, shut down. they got the tents out front and all that stuff. Everybody's wearing spacesuits. And um, so I grab the bag and I get out, and she open the door, see ya, honey. I close the door, walk, start to walk in slowly, but start to walk in the ER, and at that moment, it dawns on me, I went, uh, wow. As I look over and see the van drive away, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, uh, as bad as the doctor, and as big of a deal as this happens to be, according to the doctor, that might be the last time I see that woman. Big deal, right? Praise God. He can do anything. Um, but that was one of the events of my last couple of years. We've family issues. Haven't seen our grandkids in three months. Long story. But we got issues. We all have issues. We all have things. It's been a tough last couple of years. Lost what I would say lost, at least for now, very, very close friends. Difficult. When all the facades are pulled away and they're stripped away by hardship, we see the person underneath. We see whether our lives are truly and fully devoted to Jesus. We see the temporary fall away and the eternal takes over through the power of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. See, life all by itself, just life, just regular old life. Go to work, come home, sleep, repeat. Just that life often seems like enough, right? There's been times in the recent months when I felt as though uh, I've been at places in my heart where this is enough, enough. I find myself longing for the, the idea of my view of what normal is supposed to be. 
like I mentioned before, this idea of having control is a delusion. The Apostle Paul shows us here in Scripture that as a Christian, as a slave to Jesus Christ, this is my new normal. This is what life is supposed to be. And here's the reason why. That is to say, the reason why is, that it is these very circumstances, these very conditions that we find ourselves in, we're able to see through the work of God in Jesus Christ, in us, actually see the unseen. Because I can say in some of those moments of my life, I look back now and I recognize that wasn't me taking the next step forward. I was done. I was ready to lay down and say, that's enough. I'm done. But I'm able to see the work. In the midst of the craziness of life, we have hope. Seeing things through the lens of the gospel, we can see what Paul is describing for us here. The world in which we live today is God's workshop, if you will, where he takes these, his clay pots, his broken and cracked, cheap clay pots, fills them with his son, Jesus Christ, his treasure and our treasure, so that from the inside out, we pots are mended and prepared to live and serve our king. So we do not lose heart because we know this is not our home. We have a new and eternal place of glory that awaits us beyond all comparison. Our hope is in the the surpassing power of God through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. He died sacrificially for us. And he has risen to one day return and take us home. If we don't go home beforehand. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to, I'm not going to say embrace the hardship, but as hardship comes, as adversity comes, think of it through the lens of the gospel. This is God at work in you. Be filled with the treasure of Jesus Christ. Share this hope that we all have in him. Let's pray.